Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Smart People Podcast. This is Chris Stemp. And this is John Rojas. I'm feeling a little spunky this afternoon while doing this recording, so just try and follow along and we'll try and keep it together here. This afternoon, we're going to talk to you guys a little bit about our interview with Lauren Shockey. She is currently a staff writer at The Village Voice, where she writes a weekly restaurant review and blogs daily at Fork in the Road. Her articles have appeared in many online publications such as New York Times, the Times Style Magazine, Wall Street Journal, Slate, Atlantic Food Channel, all types of stuff. She's also worked as a freelance cookbook editor and recipe tester. Now, we do get into a little bit about her uh, current occupation as a writer and food critic, but we also talked to her about her new book that just came out called Four Kitchens, which kind of recounts the years she spent apprenticing in restaurant kitchens in New York, Hanoi, Tel Aviv, and Paris. So it's really cool. We talk a little bit about cooking, how to make your food taste better, how to make moonshine, which is probably my favorite question, and I'm now going to try and make it in my bathtub. That's kind of disgusting, though, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't sound too smart or legal. Would you drink that? Uh, I mean, I've drank worse stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Would you drink moonshine out of my bathtub? If you're not in the bathtub. 
Well, that's you don't get to make that decision. Uh, then no. <laughs> John and I, I know, consider ourselves budding chefs, if you will. That's right. We're not we're not too bad with the knife. We've been wanting to get a chef on the show for a while, and so it was cool that we got Lauren on. She just had her book. Her book literally came out the day we spoke with her. It also fits in with our theme, which is kind of also, aside from learning and becoming more well-rounded and just a better human overall, that's what we do. But we also try to, you know, talk about following passions and, you know, enjoying what you do and learning about different things so that you can explore what you like. That's that's kind of how it all started. So I don't know. I feel like it was a good mixture. No, definitely. It was a lot of fun. She had a lot of interesting stories. And like you said, she taught us some uh, some cool things, especially so, moonshine. Yeah, exactly. Before we let you listen to this awesome interview we have coming up, we do want to remind you all to use our Amazon widget. I've got it's... to interrupt you real quick. Why? Speaking of the Amazon widget, I bought new pots for my kitchen through our Amazon widget. They have everything on there. You can get every kitchen utensil, mixers, pots, pans, you name it, it's there. Knives and forks? They don't have those. Bowls? Yes. Cheese graters? Yes. Meat thermometers? Yes. So yeah, use our widget, be like John. I want to be like John. The widget, we have moved it. It is also at the top of our page. So you can just click on the huge Amazon link. You buy whatever you want. It adds no cost to you. It adds no nothing to you. It just adds to us. And that's how you can support us. And the economy. It helps that out too. Yeah, we're not begging for your money. Just go spend some money on stuff you need. That's right. So anyways, that's our plug for this afternoon. Sit back now. Enjoy, whether it be on your commute or at the office or just as you're walking your dog. Enjoy the interview. Here is Lauren Shockey. I guess first I just wanted to ask you what it is that you're doing now and how you got to where you are, a little bit about your background, just a vague, you know, Mm -hmm. background of Lauren Shockey. Sure. Um, Well, I was actually always interested in food writing. From about the time I was in high school, I had a teacher who sort of introduced me to the works of like Ruth Reichel and Jeffrey Steingarten um, and Elizabeth David. And around that time, I was just sort of like, wow, I didn't realize people could make their career studying and writing about food. So from that point on, I was always just really interested in sort of learning as much as I could about all things culinary. And I was really avid home cook. Um, I grew up in a family where we had dinner every night together. Um, it wasn't necessarily gourmet food, but it, it was just something that was very important to us. Um, so from then, I went to college and I studied French literature, which wasn't exactly related to food, but something that I was just passionate about. And then when I graduated, um, I'd done a little bit of food writing. I wrote like the food column for the school paper, and I ended up working um, as my first job in food PR, which was an interesting job, um, but I sort of realized I liked telling the story and not so much selling the story. And it's sort of around that point in time that I was like, well, I really love cooking. Why don't I go to cooking school? So I enrolled at the French Culinary Institute in New York City. Um, and so I've learned the backgrounds of French food. And when I graduated, I decided I wanted to go work in a restaurant and really have that first restaurant experience. Um, and I knew I wanted to work at WD50, which is a sort of molecular gastronomy or modernist cuisine restaurant here in New York City. Uh, Wiley Dufresne is the chef. And it's a place that really focuses on sort of using innovative techniques and sort of manipulating food in a way that just sort of you might not have seen before. 
Um, so I started working there as a culinary apprentice, and it was a really great first restaurant job. I had never really been in a professional kitchen like that before, and I started off really slow and sort of nervous. Um, and ultimately, I, as I sort of went through the day-to-day process, I found it a really interesting experience, and I thought that others might be interested in that experience as well. So I pitched it as a book idea, and ultimately, um, I was able to work in other restaurants around the world. Um, so then I ended up going to Vietnam and to Tel Aviv and to Paris, sort of working as a culinary apprentice in each place. And then I ended up writing Four Kitchens, um, which just came out. And then the end of the book was that while I really enjoyed my time in the professional kitchen, what I really loved about cooking was home cooking and not so much professional cooking. Um, So sort of thinking about what I wanted to do next, and then I actually saw a job posted on Craigslist to be a food critic at The Village Voice. So I applied for it, and I ended up getting that job, and so that's where I am now. Well, thank. that's a great, uh, great little explanation of how it all came to be, and I do want to dive into your new book, Four Kitchens. It's really interesting, and I want to get more information about that experience, Mm -hmm. but before we do that, there are some things that I noticed just, you know, looking at your website and looking through your mm-hmm. book and everything that I wanted to talk to you about. Sure. Um, first is we've kind of highlighted on this podcast a lot about following your passions, how you mm-hmm. uh, decide to go after what you want versus what society tells you. It's something that really right. strikes a chord with John and I. And I loved at the beginning of your book, the kind of dialogue you you had with your parents about mm-hmm. you just got done with school and they wanted you to get an office job. So you took it and your best friend was the copy machine and basically right. <laughs> something that everybody in an entry level corporate America has been through. So I wanted to ask you how you decided to just, you know, get out of that world, follow your passion for cooking, even though there's mm-hmm. no real guarantee behind it. I mean, there's no real guarantee behind any job. And, you know, you can really only look at the photocopier for so many days before your eyes start to go bleary. And then I was really just thinking that, you know, life is short and what I want to be doing is cooking. I don't necessarily want to be in an office job where I do sort of these tasks that aren't really contributing to things that are making me happy. Um, and, you know, like my mom, actually, she had worked in corporate America and then sort of later in life, she decided teaching was her real passion. And she ended up uh, teaching English as a second language and following her dreams. And I just feel that's something that's very important this day and age to think about what it is that you like and then just to take the plunge for it. Um, Ultimately, you're probably going to be a lot happier that you took that risk. And even if it doesn't pay out in the end, you can't regret not having taken it. I wanted to to touch base real quick with with you being a food critic now. And I'm sure you Mm -hmm. always hear that oh my gosh, you have the best job ever. That's, that's yes. so amazing. But, you know, I'm sure it's a, a ton of work. You do, you know, a lot of writing, a lot of research. You've got to go back to restaurants multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and since you have to look at food through the critic's eyes, does that ever take away or lessen the enjoyment of food for you? Um, to some degree, I would say sort of, I do go out to eat about five nights a week or so. Um, because each restaurant that I visit, I visit three times. And 
sort of even when I'm off and eating for pleasure, I'm still maybe going to a restaurant that I think maybe down the road I would want to review. So in some ways, it is hard to go out to eat for pleasure now because I'm always sort of looking at things with a critical eye. Um, it's sort of like any job. Once you do it for work, it's harder to enjoy somewhat for pleasure. But, you know, I still love eating and I still love cooking. Um, and it is a great job to have, but it is still a job too. I bet. And do you have, I mean, do you have a love in writing as well? I mean, as a critic, I'm, I'm sure you've got your own writing style. Where did you, where did you find, you know, your style or your voice? Um, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, I never went to journalism school. I had some teachers early on who gave me really good advice is just write as clearly as you can and as succinctly as you can. And I think that's really good advice for any type of writing. You don't need to cloud your writing with sort of flowery prose or putting too much detail and making it sound pretty. I think ultimately people just want well-written stuff that's as clear as possible. And so that's sort of how my style is. Working for the Village Voice, I would say we're sort of a bit of an underground or alternative paper. Um, so there's always that snarky tone that comes through. So there's definitely some of that. And just, uh, I guess, um, it's kind of a related question, but there's so many of these websites and apps out now where, you know, you have people, just everyday normal people writing reviews as well mm -hmm, um, sure. with Yelp and Chowhound and, and those type of things. Um, do you think that people are starting to rely more on those or are they still looking towards, you know, the professional food critics? Well, I think in this day and age, because there's so much more access, people look, try and gather as much information as they can from multiple sources. I think maybe with the exception of the New York Times, people aren't just going to look at one review. And I think sites like Yelp and many pages, those are really good in sort of giving a, a populist opinion on a restaurant. Um, at the same time, though, what's good about restaurant critics is that it's a single consistent person. And over time, you can judge sort of their tastes and their like. And if it's something that might mirror your own tastes and likes, then that becomes a very good barometer. Whereas on Yelp, if you read positive or negative reviews, you don't necessarily know who they are and sort of what their sort of overall personality and views are of restaurants. Whereas with mine, if you read it every week, you at least have some semblance of what I like and what I don't like and how that fits into your culinary conception. No, that, that makes actually a lot of sense. And... Mm -hmm. I know that you've worked on cookbooks and you've been a recipe developer and things like that in the past. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't consider myself a good host if I didn't ask a chef that we had on the show <laughs> what your favorite dish is, what your kind of favorite tastes are, just exactly what you were talking about, mm -hmm. how when you write, yeah. there's a style that comes through. Sure. Um, gosh, there's so many foods. I do love um, Asian food in general, um, which was a big part of the reason actually why I chose Vietnam in Four Kitchens. But basically anything from Southeast Asia, I'm, I'm a big fan of. But then I also really like simple things. Like one of my favorite dishes is spaghetti with tomato sauce. If it's done really well, there's that purity of flavor. Um, and if a chef can execute something like that really well, he does have a gift, I feel. Yeah, and then just, you know, anything that's fried I love, because how can you go wrong with fried food? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those are some of my favorites. But it really varies. And what's great about living in New York City is that there is so many different types of cuisines and foods and chefs doing different things all the time, which is great. 
I have to I have to follow up with your uh, love of fried foods. I actually uh -huh. just saw for the first time uh, fried avocado slices. Oh yes, I've heard of that. And you know, at first it sounds really weird, but then I started thinking about it, and I'm definitely gonna have to run out, you know, grab some avocados and stuff, and actually try this because just the texture of that fried with the the creamy inside. Right, you like break into it and then have that crunch and then kind of ooze out. Right, right. Yeah, kind of like a mozzarella stick almost. But healthier, but maybe. Vegetable. Yeah, <laughs> right? I say, a little definitely healthier. healthier. <laughs> maybe a little healthier. Yep. I know that you are of the belief that a lot of the produce we get in our supermarkets is kind of substandard. I know you recently wrote mm -hmm. about that. Can I did you kind of explain that? that? Yeah. Sure. Um, one of the problems with our country's big supermarket chains is that there's a lot of time that t that t goes on between the time that um, a fruit is picked and that the time it gets to the shelf. And so a lot of fruits and vegetables that come to market have been picked way before they're ripe. And then they're stored. They might get some ethylene gas to help them ripen on time. But really, when you don't have a place like farmer's markets where produce comes in every day straight from the farm, there's a lot of sort of delay in the cold chain. And that necessi doesn't necessarily mean that the fruits and vegetables are going to be great because they've been picked not at their ideal prime. And but things are changing. Do you have any kind of advice or would it just be go to a farmer's market? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the best thing that you can do if there's one in your area. Obviously, it is a luxury to have farmer's markets or right. um, that kind of thing nearby. Um, but I would say also just eat as seasonally as you can. Right now, it's really great season for nectarines and peaches. You aren't going to want to eat those in December because they've probably been flown in and just aren't going to taste the same way. Right. That makes sense. Now, what's your take on organic food? And do you notice, I'm sure you've cooked with both, you know, do you notice mm -hmm. a big uh, flavor difference? Um, I mean, I think it depends on what type of things. There are some fruits, like let's say like a banana, where organics might not matter as much because you're taking that peel off. So the pesticides that might have been used wouldn't really get into the fruit. Whereas something like a strawberry, because it's so delicate and precious, that might be something where you would definitely want to go organic. Oh, um, so if there's sort of that layer of different, sort of like a peel or something to that extent, um, right. that would be a good barometer. Okay, this, this question is probably the one I was most excited for in, in doing my research. Uh -huh. I, I saw that you recently learned how to make moonshine. I did, yes. I have a story in the Village Voice coming out soon. Pretty please. Can you can you jump the gun on the Village Voice and tell me how to do that? Can you tell us how to make moonshine? Sure. Um, yes. So, so what? Well, this is illegal. So you know, don't do it in your unlicensed still at home. Um, oh, right. First of all, <laughs> yes, you will be committing a felony. So this is just theoretical advice. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So basically, you would want to take cracked corn, um, which you can get from sort of any store that has beer supplies or um, just any place that sells like cracked dried corn. And then you would mix that with water and some yeast and that would sort of, that creates a mash. And you let the mash sit for a couple days and then the yeast um, sort of converts the sugars into alcohol. And so from there, you would run the mash through a still and the still would sort of heat up the liquid and it would evaporate. And because the alcohol evaporates at a faster rate than water does, 
it would turn into steam, but then you capture it through like a copper coil or something to that extent, which cools it. So then that would turn into alcohol liquid. Pretty easy, actually. I was going to say it. It sounds kind of difficult to a to an outsider. What I mean, theoretically, of course, would this be possible to just rig up in a in a few days? Yes, yes. But actually, um, I mean, most sort of professional or hobby moonshiners would use a real still, um, oh, okay. and that definitely is an easier way to do it. But the moonshine that I actually saw being made was we use or they used like a regular pot with a crock top lid, and then oh. that lid was sealed shut with a paste from made from flour and water because okay. you don't want any of the steam to evaporate because then you'll uh, be losing your moonshine. Uh, and then okay. the so then the crock top pot is sort of fitted with a rubber gasket and then there's a copper coil coming through that. And then the coil is held in place by a water bottle filled with ice. And then it gets into a Pyrex measuring cup. Huh. It's very MacGyverish. I like it. <laughs> it was very MacGyverish. Um, yeah, I know the people who I saw making it. I mean, they were just sort of hobbyists, and they really believed in making spirits themselves because sort of the purity of product and not really having the need to buy commercial moonshine. And sort of moonshine itself has been has such a storied history that it's not necessarily a product you would want to go buy in the store. Right. You know? It'd be right. it'd be something that was made by a single person through like a recipe that he's used for so long in a single place. Right. Well, that's um, what but, I like about it. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely interesting. Like we're, we are seeing much more um, moonshine coming to market right. and some of this moonshine is actually being made in urban environments, which is definitely a shift. Now, I guess I do want to get into, as we alluded to, you have a new book that just came out today, Four Kitchens, and it's incredible. I, I love the story behind it just because it's, I mentioned earlier, you kind of just went for it. And not only did mm -hmm. you go for it, you went huge because you went to four different places all across yeah. the globe. Well, go big and or go home. <laughs> exactly. And that <laughs> is know? that is my motto. I mean, that's I love mm -hmm. that. So I guess I wanted to just get a little background on the book and and kind of tell us, you know, it's it's tough with such a, a grand idea, but I guess give us the basics and then we'll kind of dive in. So like where you went and things like okay. that. So I spent a year working as a stagiaire, which is um, culinary speak for apprentice. Um, and I worked in four different restaurants around the world. The first was WD50 in New York City. And as I mentioned, that's sort of high concept molecular gastronomy restaurant. And from there, I went to Hanoi in Vietnam and worked at La Verde Call, which was an upscale Vietnamese restaurant with a couple French influences here and there. And then from there, I went to Tel Aviv in Israel and worked at Carmela Bistro, which was sort of a laid-back Mediterranean bistro. And then finally, I went to Sondrin's, which was a restaurant in Paris. And that was sort of a haute gastronomy, two Michelin stars, um, sort of very traditional, like, French restaurant. And, yeah, I spent a year sort of in each place. I Each apprenticeship um, was about two to three months. months. And it was really about sort of what life is like when you first start out in the restaurant, Um so I guess a lot of books have talked about chefs at sort of their peak, but this is really about that first year when you go in, you don't really know what you're doing and all the noises and sort of fast pace is overwhelming at first, but then sort of how you grow as a cook and sort of how you understand how restaurant life works. And without spoiling anything from the, from the book, mm -hmm. is there a favorite experience that you had in either one of these cities or, or all of these cities? 
Yeah, I mean, I think each city presented a different experience. I would say WD50 was great because it was my first restaurant job, and they really taught me the proper way to work in in a, in a restaurant. So it's very dedicated, very passionate. Uh, whereas when I went to Vietnam, sort of culinary technique and knife skills weren't as important. It was much more about flavor and just sort of experiencing life and culture in Vietnam, um, which was really great. I remember the chef that I was working for said to me, if you're working here as a stagiaire, don't just stay in the kitchen. Go out and explore the markets. Go to the shops. Eat the street food because that's also important to Vietnamese cuisine. And then Carmela Bistro was really interesting for me because I was actually running the appetizer station there, which had been a big shift from WD50 where I was really sort of at the prep cook level. Um, whereas now I was sort of in charge of the station, which was really great. And I think Sunrise was also interesting in that I, I had a similar experience there to uh, WD50 because I was doing a lot of sort of prep work. Um, but you sort of realize that all this prep work is needed to run a restaurant like that. So I would say probably Hanoi as a city was the one that I ended up being most attracted to just because it was such an intense environment and so different to New York City. So there's a energy and sort of vivaciousness that's everywhere in that city. What did you find is kind of the the biggest difference or differences in terms of what people like? Like, it, you know, I I assume you know in New York it's the it has to look good. It's probably really expensive, mm -hmm. all that stuff. As opposed to the other places you've been, what do people look for? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think New York and also in Paris, it's a city where you know the shock of the new is very important. So. Restaurant culture is very important. So it's what's new, what's opening, who's the hot chef. Whereas in Hanoi and um, Israel, those weren't necessarily the same concerns. And I think restaurant culture there in general was a little bit more laid back. It wasn't sort of who the like hot chef in town was. Whereas I feel that's definitely something that's in New York City and Paris. So when you were a brand new chef, you know, new to mm -hmm. the scene, is there a like a hazing process almost that happens in terms of, of fraternities or uh, athletic teams where the new people um, have to do certain things out of the ordinary? Yeah. Well, I think sort of anytime you go into a restaurant, you're assessed on your skills and just your ability to follow directions. I think that's definitely the most important thing is being able to listen and take direction. And so, you know, at WD50, some of my first jobs were picking parsley, and I would pick parsley for about an hour. And you would think, oh, well, can't anyone pick parsley? But really, there are good ways to pick parsley, and there are bad ways to pick parsley. The good way would be to do it to pluck each leaf off individually, whereas the bad way, which one other stagiaire did, was to take a knife and just sort of hack the leaves off. But, you know, in, in that respect, you get stems, and ultimately, if you can't do that correctly, you're not going to progress to the next skill or, or tasks that you'll have. So it's things like that. It's not so much that you're going to be beaten up or hit with knives or wooden <laughs> spoons, um, at least not where I worked. Um, right. I would hope that wouldn't happen anywhere. Um, uh, but it's sort of doing those repetitive sort of, one might say mindless, but they're not mindless because they're needed tasks. Right. Yeah. And just sort of focusing on, you know, can you separate 100 eggs and do it efficiently and properly and cleanly? And if that's yes, then great. Then you'll be given something that's a little bit more challenging next time. If you can't, you'll be stuck doing that, you know, for the next month. 
And I was going to say, I can just picture a chef telling you that they need a certain ingredient that maybe doesn't really exist. So you're running all over the place, like trying to find something like those type of things. Yeah, I would say that happens to some degree. Or they would say, like, I need this. I need you to mince, like, the shallot in, you know, two minutes. And it's like a pound of shallot. And you're like, well, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> but I would, I would say, actually, there wasn't, there wasn't as much hazing in restaurants as I sort of had thought of there might be. Right. But I don't know if that was also a product of me being a woman and most of the other chefs being men. It is there's a dynamic that occurs when sort of men and women are put in situations, and I would say it's a lot easier for a man to haze another man. It gets somewhat dicier for a man to haze a woman. <laughs> well, actually, that's I was going to ask you that. Did you have to put up with a resistance like having a woman cooking is goes back for years and centuries but mm-hmm. in in the professional arena I think it might be a little more difficult or different especially in foreign places did you have to deal mm-hmm. with some of that Yeah I would say um Paris was actually the place where I sort of that came into question the most one of the chefs would sort of jokingly say to me, oh, Lauren, after you shell the crab, um, which I use with a black light because it helped illuminate the shell, she'd say, why don't we get, get naked and sunbathe under the, the black light together? Which oh. sort of, that, that would be constitute probably a sexual harassment here in America. Probably, but, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that it just might be he's French, you know, look at Dominique Strauss-Kahn, you know, the French, they have their own ways and maybe that's just what French people do. But otherwise, like in the other countries, I think it was more... I, did, I just went away with more of a sense of wanting another woman in the kitchen. It wasn't so much that women couldn't really do the jobs or were harassed. It was just that there weren't a lot of us there. I, just, I wanted to, to see what, like, what you picked up or learned, like, specific skills in each, mm-hmm. each one of the restaurants. I mean, were there – I'm sure you had, you know, people that you looked up to or that, that mentored you in each place. Mm-hmm. What were – the certain skills that you learned at at each one of these cities and restaurants that you went through? Um, well, definitely learning how to hold my knife properly at WD-50 was probably the greatest skill that I learned. And I was actually shocked that I'd gone through culinary school and hadn't picked up the technique of how to hold my knife properly because you definitely want to grip up on the knife um, on the handle. You want your index finger actually to be flush with the blade. So that really helps you give control. Yeah, you don't want to grip it like the way you might like a tennis racket where your whole hand is on the handle. You definitely want part of your finger um, up against the blade. And that was like a great skill. And I was sort of like, wow, how had I never known this before? I feel so stupid. And then, I mean, going to Hanoi really taught me about how to use flavor and how to use fresh herbs to really add vibrancy and pop to your food. Like you don't necessarily need a lot of seasonings or even a lot of ingredients if you have like beautifully flavored herbs like basil or mint or perilla or some of the herbs that are um, specific to Vietnamese cuisine, how that can really just help enliven your food and that sometimes simple food is just great because it uses only a couple ingredients. And then I guess Carmela Bistro taught me, I guess, well, my experience in Israel is really about sort of learning what I loved about cooking was home cooking and cooking with friends that you don't need to do restaurant cooking to impress people. Um, which isn't so much a technique, but was a big takeaway from that experience. And I think that sort of shaped my view through the rest of the book. And then finally, at Sandra's, as I was mentioning before, my main job was shelling crab all day. So I definitely learned how to shell crabs properly, because um, I spent about six hours a day shelling crabs sometimes. So you definitely want to take your big sort of mallet, and after you've washed your crabs off, you want to break them in half, and then you want to cut the halves 
um, and half the other way. And then you use a little pick and you go through. And then using a black light was actually amazing. You sort of turn off all the lights and you put the crab on the table and then you just sort of filter through it with your fingers and the black light will illuminate any bits of shell and you can just pick through it and then you'll have shellless crab meat. Wow. So for, you know, if you were looking to, for something to do with your black light that's sitting in your basement, <laughs> you know, you can just make a lot of crab. The reason I like that, I grew up in Southern Maryland and I mean, mm-hmm. since I was probably six, I knew how to, cause we would just go all you can eat crabs. And right. I would get yelled at when I left any crab meat in, you know, but mm-hmm. even Fair. I did obviously get into that detail. Yeah. Oh, it might be hard to take to the restaurant, you know. <laughs> yeah, it might be a little weird. Well, kind of along those lines, I was hoping you could tell us how we replicate some of the finer dining into our own kitchens and kind of advice you have for, as I mm-hmm. mentioned, the amateur chef such as sure. myself. Well, I will say the biggest differences between home cooking and restaurant cooking is the amount of salt used. Basically, look at the salt that you're adding to your food at home and then add another tablespoon. And then that's yes. sort of approximating what the amount of salt that restaurants are using. That's what I um, do. That's why I just <laughs> take every spice seriously and pour mm-hmm. it in and it always comes out better. I don't know. It's just yeah. Me. No, I mean, it's it's kind of a, like astounding how much salt is used in restaurants. Um, and you're kind of grossed out at first, but then you're like, oh, no, it needs the salt. Uh, Same thing with butter. You know, you might be using one tablespoon at home. Go ahead and use half the stick. (laughs) (laughs) It will be better. And then also just using really high heat. Like I never, I always use um, on my stove the highest setting possible, even if I'm just sauteing something. And I think that's a big difference because in restaurants you have professional stoves and you're just using a really, really high heat. So to get that nice sear of like, let's say you're doing a steak, you definitely want to do it on the highest setting possible so you can get that nice char. I was, um, I was so, going to ask, yeah. too, because I live, I live in an apartment in the Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. area, and my uh, range and oven, all that stuff is electric. So okay. cooking... That might be a little bit trickier. I was going to ask, are there any tricks to cooking food well on an electric range? You know, I really haven't cooked that much on an electric range, so I don't necessarily know what the tricks would be. Because that's so JV. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I can't can't have a grill or or anything like that. I mean, I can have, I guess, one of those griddle things. but Yeah, but George Foreman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, I think if that's like a concern, so maybe you can't get flavor from sort of high heat, but you could definitely get flavor through like seasonings and spices and herbs and that sort of way to give more flavor to your food, I would say. Yeah. And then I guess there's some also tricks. One really good trick that I learned while I was in WD-50 was um, putting plastic wrap down on your workspace so that if you're doing something like making a cake or something that just sort of involves a lot of pans or pots and might get messy, just layer plastic wrap on the work surface. And then when you're done, you can just peel it off and then you have no mess. Oh, that's, so that's such a, a good that's idea. That's a good time saver. That's such a good idea because <laughs> we used to cook. I, John and I used to live together and there were three other dudes that would live there. And we all cooked, mm-hmm. which was impressive. But, but if you're the last guy to get home to cook, there is literally right. not a clean thing in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a good little trick. Yeah. No, it's great. Then I, I used that when I had to separate all the egg yolks. And so, you, you know, you get the whites and they kind of drip everywhere. And it would really be a mess by the time you've done like 150 eggs. 
Um, so that was really great. You just sort of peel it up and then you're done. Well, I wanted to remind everybody that Lauren's book, Four Kitchens, recently came out and is available bookstores such as Amazon and other, I guess, online mm-hmm. online places. And Lauren, we wanted to thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, and thank you for having me. I, I just wanted to see if you had, you know, a website that you wanted to uh, push our listeners towards so that they can find out more about you, your book. Yeah, I have, um, I have a personal website. It's laurenshockey.com. And yeah, it has my articles and I have a little bit of a blog and there's information about the book. So you guys shall check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate you being on today. Yeah, thank you. All right, Lauren. Thanks again. Okay, thanks. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Lauren. As a reminder, her book is called Four Kitchens. Check it out on Amazon. You can buy it through our site after you get done with that. Come join us over at Facebook. Look us up, Smart People Podcast. You'll see us there. Like us, comment on the shows, talk with people on there, just get involved with the community that we've got built up there. And Chris, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've gotten a steady flow of of likes coming in. I know we're so close to 200. I was going to say that. We're really looking forward to that milestone. It's small. It's so bizarre. We get thousands of downloads, yet so few likes. So maybe you like listening to us, you just don't like technology. That's kind of what I'm going to hope for in, instead of hurting my fragile ego and saying you just don't like us enough to go on Facebook. I like to think that our our listeners are smart and sophisticated and they just don't have a Facebook account and don't deal with it. Just don't have the time. That's right. Yeah. Too many other good things going on in their lives. Too many books to read, things to learn. Exactly. I like it. All right, guys. Well, tune in next week around the same time. We try and get it out between uh, Saturday and Tuesday, I'd say. Yeah, we're pretty flexible now. You know, maybe we'll get back on pace sometime. But uh, tune in. Hope you enjoy. Let us know what you think. Contact us. We love having you guys out there. Talk to you soon. <laughs>